0: We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation, chapter 19, and we shall read from verse 17. Revelation 19, from verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And may the Lord add his own blessing to this short reading of his word we come to the uh, latter part now of this chapter 19 where John tells us what he sees following the scene when the one whose name is faithful and true and whose name is the word of God and whose name is king of kings and lord of lords riding forth with his army of redeemed people to conquer, riding forth, conquering, and to conquer. Now, John tells us then in verse 17 what he sees following this. And again in verse 19, he tells us more. You will see in this chapter 19 three times we read the words, and I saw, verse 11, and I saw heaven opened, verse 17, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, verse 19, and I saw the beast uh, and the kings of the earth and so on. Thirty-four times throughout the book, you will come across these words, and that is perfectly understandable when we uh, remind ourselves of the reason John is actually seeing and indeed hearing what he sees and hears. Going back to the first chapter, we read in verse uh, 11, the one who is the elf and the omega, the first and the last, and this is what he says to John, what thou seest, write in a book and then send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. And this record of what John sees is to be then sent and distributed in the seven churches of Asia, these Gentile churches that have been established under the gospel, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, and so on. Now, John, in the very introduction to this book, we read at verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass And he sent it and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So this is an accurate record of what John saw. And it is sent to the churches for their information, for their encouragement, and for their comfort. The focus, as we've seen throughout the book, is always upon that one central person, the Lamb in the midst of the throne, the great King and head of the church. The whole focus is always upon him, upon his person, upon his glory, upon his reign, upon his majesty, and so on, and in relationship to his people in particular. Now, you will see in this chapter 19, there is reference to two suppers, one of which we've already looked at. In verse 7 of this chapter, we read, Let us be glad and rejoice." And give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Then in verse 9 he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called, Unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who are called to this supper are truly blessed. And uh, when we come to consider the second supper, you can see how indeed they are truly blessed. The supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then we come down to verse Eh uh, 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. The supper of the great God. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the, the supper of the great God. Now there is a connection between them. And you will see that the supper of the great God is connected with the coming forth out of heaven of the one who is faithful and true riding in judgment and to war on his white steed. You will see the description that is given of those who are at the marriage supper of the lamb and then you will note the description that is given of those who are following the one who is faithful and true and the one who is the word of god and there see it this is the lamb's wife those who are a part of the Heavenly Bride of Christ, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Then note the description of those who are coming as the army of heaven with the one who is the word of God. Verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven, followed upon him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. You'll see the garb is the same. They are arrayed in the same uh, garments. Uh, Those who are at the supper of the marriage supper of the Lamb and those who are riding forth as the army of the one who is the word of God to see the feasting at the great supper, or the supper rather, of the great God. So the two events are connected. But you will see here in the final verses of this chapter the result of the conflict that is to take place. Now John tells us, verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and so on. And then in verse 19 he says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat in the horse and against his army. But you'll note, John gives us no details much and gives us no description of the conflict. He just tells us what he saw and what does he focus upon. Not an actual conflict. But he tells us that there are captives taken in this Warfare in this conflict. And as we look at these verses, we may just keep in mind three particular things, three matters in these final verses. First of all, the folly of Christ's enemies. Their absolute folly. Then secondly, their failure. Their folly leads them to failure, and then to final defeat, and you see the last end of Christ's enemies. First of all then, the absolute folly of this conflict on the part of those who are at enmity with Christ and who are at enmity with the word of God. In the second psalm, we have there mention of something peculiar, almost incomprehensible regarding God himself. Psalm 2, the question is asked at the beginning of the psalm, why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. Why do they do it? Why are they raging against the one whose name is the Word of God? Why are they raging against Him and against His army? And why do the people imagine a vain thing? They become confident in their own folly and they imagine something that is utterly vain and empty the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against his anointed what a vain thing indeed they take counsel and they decide to go to war with god's anointed king in zion we read What they're saying, verse 3, let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords from us. God is not going to enslave us, as it were. God is not going to keep us in bondage. We are going to break free from his laws. We are going to abandon his precepts. We will not be in bondage to God. But what do we read? Verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He that sitteth in the heavens. Where is he sitting? On his throne that we've looked at. He's enthroned. And he laughs. This is the only time you ever read of God laughing. Some try to use this to say that God is a God of humor. that is not the case at all here, whatever. God is laughing at their folly. God is laughing at the vain attempt to rebel against the throne of him who sits at the right hand of God. He laughs because it is just the greatest act of folly imaginable that they would set themselves in array in battle against the one who is here riding out on the white horse and the armies of heaven following him. Now you can see indeed several Uh, remarks that John makes here that would indicate why indeed it is such an act of folly. First of all, the one who rides out is a war veteran. He is a veteran. Notice what is stated of him. We're told in verse 13, He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Now you think of it throughout history. He whose name is the Word of God, he's the incarnate Word. He is the incarnation of the eternal Word. And what are we told here? He is the one clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. He's been to war before. And you can see that there are several times throughout the word of God in the Old Testament where God is seen actually at war on behalf of his church and behalf of his people. You can go through... Many parts of the Old Testament where the nation of Israel, the people of God, were engaged in war with their enemies. And you see how a God himself wrought on their behalf. It is interesting to see here. That those who are following the one whose name is the Word of God, they are described... And yet for an army, they are peculiar. You go back in the uh, same book and you'll see uh, an army previously, a satanic army described. Chapter 9, we're told, verse 7, The shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads, were as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces, were as the faces of men? And they had hair as the hair of woman. And their teeth, were as the teeth of lions? They were effeminate and yet vicious and cruel. They had breastplates as it were, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had teals like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their teals, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue uh, hath his name Apollyon. Now, there's a description of this satanic force. It seems that they just carry everything before them. Notice the army that follows the one who is the faithful and true witness whose name is the word of God we are told the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. There's no mention of any armor. And there's no mention of any weapons. Because they're already in victory. They've already conquered. And they just simply follow the one who is conquering. The only sword in this army, this magnificent, orderly army, the only sword is the sword in the mouth of him, out of his mouth, verse 15, goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And you see throughout the Old uh, Testament, Again and again, how the Lord wrought exactly as he does here for the salvation and deliverance of his people. You just, If you go back to Exodus chapter 14, uh, just to begin with, there you have the children of Israel. They've been brought out of Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land, but they have a problem. Pharaoh's army is closing in upon them. Moses becomes concerned. Where do they go now? What do they do now? Moses said unto the people in verse 13 of Exodus 14, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. The Lord is going to give you the victory. You imagine all this crowd, this motley crowd of uh, slaves that have come out of Egypt, and all the horses and chariots and generals and infantry, of the armies of Egypt closing in upon them, well, ordinarily, what do you expect? Nothing but defeat for the Israelites. What does Moses say? You don't have to worry. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Then again, if you go over to the book of Judges, you will see the children of Israel are now in the land, but uh, they uh, sometimes they backslide, they turn away from the Lord, and He has to punish them for their sins and their waywardness. But He hears their cries, and He delivers them with great deliverances. In Judges chapter four, you have the children of Israel. Serious trouble, confronted with mighty forces, but this is what Deborah says to Barak. Verse uh, 14 of Judges 4, Deborah said unto Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? He goes Before you. He's the general leading his troops. He's in the front line. He goes before you. And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. And the Lord discomforted Caesar and his chariots and all his host with the edge of the sword before Barak. Wasn't Barak's sword. It was God's sword. So that Sezra lighted down of his chariot and fled away on his feet. And then if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 17 we have amazing scene depicted for us the glorious type. The type of the great Lord of David. David is the type. He goes out to fight with Goliath. And if you were looking on, you would be thinking, well, what is the significance? What is the sense of this? What has happened to Saul, king of Israel? What has gone wrong with the armies of Israel? That they're sending out this shepherd boy to meet this great champion of Gath Goliath. What do we read? That when David approaches the Philistine, verse forty-two of First Samuel seventeen. Philistine looked ap- about and saw David. It was as though he looked about; he could hardly believe. This is insulting. Is this all that's coming to meet me? This this stripling of a lad. He looked around as though it can't be. There must be somebody else. This is a mistake. But we read, when he looked about and he saw David, he disdained him. He disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog, that thou comest to me with steves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Little wonder then, because he was so insulted. I'm a man of war. I'm a champion of the armies of the Philistines. Everyone puts their confidence in me. I'm insulted that such a youth, such a stripling, with no experience of warfare, uh, he has never uh, put armor, as it were, upon him into the field, and he's coming here. What an insult. He disdained him. What did the Philistine go on to say to David? Keep this in mind when we're looking in in Revelation 19. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. What do we read in Revelation 19 of the supper of the great God? the same kind of language, the same kind of expression, connected with the same kind of experiences and events. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defied this day. Will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand? The Lord's going to do it. Oh, you look around, you don't see God. All you see is this stripling. That's all you can see. But there's a there's a God who's with me. And the Lord, he is going to deliver thee into mine hand. And I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the hosts of the Philistines this day, look at it again, unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Look at the language. Same kind of language as refers to the supper of the great God. David is the type. Christ, riding out as the faithful and true witness, Whose name is faithful and true, who is the word of God, he is the fulfillment of the type, and he is going to give this great this supper of the great God as David his type give to the Israelites whenever they slew the Philistines beginning of course with Goliath again if you go to 2nd Chronicles chapter 20 of another situation in the history of Israel of old and uh, the Lord's poor people are greatly distressed because of what they're confronted with and they know not what to do Second Chronicles 20, verse 12, Oh, our God is the King's cry. Will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee to see what thou wilt do. We can do anything. But we're looking to see what God is going to do. Then (coughs) we're told, verse 15, midway through the verse which Jehoshaphat said, Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 17, Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, there are many, many other incidents. I've just looked at these because we've stated that the one that these armies are coming against, he's a veteran. He has his garments and they are dipped in the blood of his enemies again and again. And you see that he never lost a battle, never won. We've looked at some of them. He always gives the victory <coughs> to his people whenever he goes to war. And it will be no different here. But you will also see that out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, verse 15 of Revelation 19, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword. You go back to the first chapter of Revelation, you will see that, Sword is described as a two-edged sword. Revelation chapter one. <clears throat> We're told that the one whom John saw in the midst of the golden candlesticks, he had in his right hand, verse sixteen, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword because he will use it both to defend his church and also to destroy his enemies it's two-edged it is used to defeat his enemies but also to defend his church the word the, the word of god will Cast down his enemies, but the word of God will be the shield and the defense of his people. But you will see in regard to what we are referring to, the folly, the absolute folly, imagining a vain thing. We're going to see in a moment two of these terrible characters that are incorporated in this satanic, this fiendish trinity, two of them removed out of their place. But what have they been doing? Well, you go back in the uh, book of the Revelation, and you will see the rising of these two beasts, one out of the waters, and one out of the earth. Now the second beast, we're told, he, verse 12 of chapter 13, exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth, and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven and the earth in the sight of men. Now, these are great wonders that men are amazed by and are greatly impacted by. We read then verse 14. He deceiveth them. He deceiveth them that dwell on the earth. By the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Now what's his work? He's deceiving. He's deceiving men, he's deceiving the nations, he's deceiving the kings, he's deceiving uh, mankind. What does he deceive them into believing? Well, you go back in the chapter 13 to the first beast. And he's deceiving men to worship the first beast, to devote themselves to him, to follow him. And what is said about the first beast? We're told, verse 4 of the chapter 13, they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Note now, Who is able to make war with him? See the confidence. Who is able to make war with this beast? Now we, of course, we've noted the dragon... And the beast and the false prophet are the evil trinity. Who is able to make war with the beast? No one. This is what the second beast deceives men into believing. We will follow the beast. We will worship the beast. We will war with the beast because we cannot be defeated. We must win. Who can make war with the beast? And then you will see further that in verse 7, it was given unto him to make war with the saints. Well, pity the saints then. Who can make war? With his beast, and he is making war with the saints. We're told, not only does he, has he the power to make war with them, he is actually the power to overcome them. The power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Now, what do we read in Revelation 17, or uh, 19 rather, verse 19, And I saw the beast. Well, well. What beast is he seeing? It's the beast. And it is said of him, Who can make war with the beast? Well, here is the conflict Between him who is faithful and true, he whose name is the word of God, he who has on his thigh the name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Who can make war with the beast? Well, here's one who's going to make war with him. And he rides out. And the one who has been at war with the saints is now at war with their king. And it's as though here are these veterans meeting, clashing in this great conflict. He whose name is the word of God and he whose name is that of blasphemy here's the great clash who can make war with the beast and the beast I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him that sat in the horse and against his army and there's one sword in this great army and it is the sword, the, the two-edged sword that goes out of the mouth of him who rides on this white horse. But then look at what happens. Verse 20. And the beast was taken. And the beast was taken. Who can make war with the beast? He is warred with the saints. He has overcome them. It's like in the Second World War, when Hitler uh, decided that he was going to rule the world, and he advances into Poland, and into France, and into Austria, and he keeps advancing territory after territory, and it was as though he's overcoming until the final day comes when he loses it all. And he's brought to defeat. And the beast has made war with the saints. And has troubled the church. And has afflicted the saints. But here now he comes. Full of confidence. He has been trampling over the saints. Trampling over the church of Christ. And now he takes on him whose name is the word of God, who is king of kings and lord of lords. And the beast was taken. And we're told in addition, and the false prophet, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. What have these two beasts, the beast and the false prophet, been doing? Deceiving the people. Deceiving the nations, influencing them to war against the saints, to follow the beast, to, to destroy the church of Christ. But here's the conflict now. And the beast and the false prophet are taken. What an occasion this has to be. Who's going to deceive the nations now? Who's going to influence men to worship the beast now? This is the promise of a glorious day when these tremendous influences are now taken out of the nations and out of society. They are, we're told that these Two are cast which deceived them that had the mark of the beast and them that worshipped the image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. What a terrible sight John saw. They were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. To put it simply, they're cast into hell because this is the description of God's hell. And they're cast alive. They're not annihilated. They're not put out of existence. They're alive. They're alive in the place of torment. They have all their faculties, as it were. They're living, they're existing in this place of torment. But, this is the great victory that the lamb, the uh, faithful and whose name is faithful and true, His name is the word of God. John doesn't describe any conflict. He just simply tells us, And I saw this beast that deceived can deceive no more. This beast that was worshipped is not going to be worshipped now. This beast that trampled on the saints won't be doing it now. So this evil trinity is now broken, as it were, by divine power, by the power of the one who is the champion of his people, King of kings and Lord of lords. But you will see also why it is so foolish on the part of the enemies of Christ to war with him because part of the description is that uh, he had on his head, verse 12, many crowns. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head wear many crowns, testifying to many victories in the past, if you over to 2 Samuel chapter 12, you'll see an incident referred to in the experience of King David, Second Samuel and the chapter 12. And David, <coughs> his army is fighting, and we're told in verse 29 of 2 Samuel 12, David, and he's the great type, remember, David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took their king's crown from off his head, the weight whereof was a talent of gold with the precious stones, and it was set on David's head. And he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. Here is the glorious type, and he's at war. And when he conquers his enemy, he takes the crown of his head, and he wears it himself, as kings did, as a a testimony to his triumph. Here's the great antitype himself, David. The great David of the New Testament. And he's riding forth, and on his head are many crowns. Because he has conquered many enemies, he has defeated many foes again and again. You go back and you see what is uh, referred to uh, chapter 13, the dragon and the beast that are taken. Beast that are taken. What do we read? In uh, verse 1 of Revelation 13, I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his heads ten crowns. So he's going to take ten crowns. He's going to destroy the power of the beast. Then you look at the uh, second beast and you see that he also has crowns and he has uh, ten crowns and seven crowns, ten crowns. On his head were many crowns. He never experienced defeat ever. What a folly it is then. What folly, how men are deceived. The beast, the second beast, has been deceiving men into believing they can destroy Christ. Into believing they can destroy the church. Into believing they can destroy the saints. And so with confidence... They gather together. And John says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. No doubt that must have been a scene as far as John was concerned to see this mighty, amassing of forces. And to see the glorious Christ of God riding out against his enemies and the armies of heaven following him. And there they are, robed in their white robes, which is the righteousness of saints, clean and white. They just follow him. It's as though they're just following him to victory. That's what they're doing. What an amazing encouragement that must have been to John when he writes these things. I saw this. And he's writing to the seven churches. And they are, some of them, being trampled on. They are being persecuted. And they know not, in reality, what their future is as far as their own strength. And their own resources are concerned. But to see this is a truly great encouragement to them. Now we read from the uh, prophecy of Zechariah or or, uh, the prophecy of Ezekiel rather I should say from the chapter 39 for good reason. In that prophecy of Ezekiel You have a similar description of defeat. And uh, in chapter 38 and chapter 39, God calls together Gog and Magog. And He calls them together to destroy them. In the, we will get to it in chapter 20, we see verse 7 of chapter 20 in Revelation, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog. The same names, the same Parties that appear back in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, when John writes to the seven churches in Asia, you must remember this. They were not in possession of the New Testament as you and I have it. But they were in possession of the Old Testament scriptures. They probably would have been the Subjugant, the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. But they, that's what they would mostly depend upon, the scriptures of the Old Testament. There would be the beginning of circulation of epistles and gospels and so on. But they would largely be depending upon the scriptures of the Old Testament. And John would have read Ezekiel. And the saints would have read perhaps Ezekiel. And they would be aware of this great and mighty army coming against God and his people. And God calling them together uh, uh, in uh, Revelation 20, you will see, uh, because uh, there is no agreement... No certainty as to who Gog and Magog truly are. There are different opinions as to who they represent, and peoples, the ancient peoples, and so on. But here when we come to Revelation, we are told that Satan shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, north, south, east, west. And yet, there are only two identifications, Gog and Magog, which would lead us to believe they represent a spirit and an attitude to Christ and an attitude to his word and an attitude to his church. But back in Ezekiel, You'll see in chapter thirty-nine what God said He would uh, do. In the chapter uh, chapter thirty-nine, God says, "Verse four: Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and the people that is with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort." and to the beasts of the field to be devoured, and so on. And you will see uh, a further reference to this event, very similar to what we read in Revelation 19. So what is John to understand? What would the church understand? That in the Old Testament, God was telling them, the church then what he was going to do by way of deliverance. As he delivered his ancient people, so he will still deliver his church in every generation, but particularly when it comes to this great conflict that is going to produce a particular kind of deliverance that is going to bring about an amazing change. In the society of men among the nations, you and I, don't we pray again and again for the Lord to hasten the day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters covers the deep and so on. And yet I fear that sometimes we have a very vague kind of an understanding Of what that will mean. You see the picture here. The beast deceiving the nations. Causing them to worship the first beast. Deceiving them into thinking we can make war with God's lamb. We can wipe out the church. We can destroy it. And to find those powers removed. What a change takes place in the nations. The beast that deceives is cast into the lake of fire. I saw John said, I saw them taken. I saw them taken prisoners. I saw them taken and all their power and their influence, all their satanic power they're cast into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Now then, when we come to chapter 20, we find something further of the unfolding of what results from this great war, the failure of the foolish enemies of Christ when he casts the beast and the false prophet All that they represent, their power, their influence upon the nations, upon kings. And they're cast into the lake that burned with fire and brimstone. What a day it is that lies before the church of Christ. That is why we pray. And we've encouragement to pray. For that day when those influences will be destroyed by the one Whose sword is in his mouth the word of God and when the nations will be delivered and freed from this terrible influence, but we shall leave it there, may the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Our gracious and eternal God we rejoice that thy poor afflicted church is always in the victory. We rejoice that there is one who is even now at this very moment King of kings and Lord of lords. And however much the nations and the heathen and his enemies may rage against him and against his people and against his church, the Lord shall have them in derision. The Lord shall laugh at their folly. O, oh, do thou grant us then this day, to be seeking the evidence that we are among that great white robed army, following him whose name is faithful and true, whose name is the word of God. Bless thy truth to us, pardon us, accept us, for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.